In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. So we are in the 17th Sunday after Trinity. Uh, Not too many weeks left until we're at the end of this season and the beginning of Advent, if you can believe that. Uh, Just the rest of October and then November, and we're done. So we're in chapter 17 of Luke's Gospel. And as we've talked before, when there's a change of scenery in the Gospel, we also have a change of theme. So we see that uh, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And so we're going to expect that now we have a a new theme beginning here. Of course, we know that when we see that he is on his way to Jerusalem, that he's on his way to sacrifice himself. That's what he's on his way for. He's on his way uh, for sacrificial love. He's on his way to sacrifice himself for the world. He's on his way to offer himself as that perfect sacrifice to God as the Paschal Lamb, the Passover Lamb for the people of God, that his blood will be on the doorposts of our houses and on our hearts so that death will pass over us and we can enter into eternal life. We know that that is what is meant by he's on his way to Jerusalem. We should be reading all of that when we see Jerusalem and uh, that that is his destination. And then we should also remember that as he's going through Galilee and Samaria, uh, that we should remember who it is uh, that dwells there, who these people are. And of course, one Samaritan uh, gets uh, picked up here as well. So you'll remember that uh, after the United Kingdom, after uh, Saul and David and Solomon, uh, this United Kingdom of uh, Israel, that there is a civil war, there's a breach after Solomon, that there's the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And Jerusalem is the capital of that southern kingdom of Judah, where the, the Jews continue to worship the Lord in the temple. But the, uh, the people in the north, that northern kingdom, do not go down to Jerusalem. They don't worship the Lord. And uh, they are separated from God. And they start to follow other idols. The Assyrians eventually take them over. And the Assyrians rename that northern kingdom of Israel uh, Samaria. And so they get renamed after this uh, takeover by the Assyrians. So when we read about the... Uh, the um, Uh, The Samaritans, what we want to be thinking of is that these are the people of God who have rejected him in his worship and they've sacrificed their identity with God uh, out of rebellion. And so that's what a Jew would be thinking. They'd be thinking rebel cousin, you know, the cousin that that's a rebel that has walked away from God and uh, that anything that they suffer is is because of uh, that's what they deserve. And so uh, here it is that that Jesus is passing through and we see that there are these 10 lepers uh, that are in this place and uh, they come to him and they ask him, uh, which to me is a really strange question. Uh, They ask him to have mercy on them. It's not what I would initially think that they would say because they're looking presumably for healing, right? And healing would be grace. Grace is those good things of God that we don't deserve, right? That healing. But they ask for mercy. Why ask for mercy? Leprosy, and this is just a thought, leprosy is a social disease, right? It's a disease that's passed socially. It's passed person to person by touch. And typically we think of uh, as uh, social diseases as touching people we're not supposed to touch, right? 
And that because we get infected, then we're not supposed to touch the people we are supposed to touch. Does that make sense? I've touched somebody I'm not supposed to and I got sick. And now I can't touch the people I want to or I'm supposed to, my family, right? The people that I'm close to. And so now I'm separated from my family because of this sin. This is typically how we think of social diseases and leprosy would be no different. It's highly contagious, no cure for it in the ancient world. And uh, the only thing that could be done for them was to quarantine them, to separate them. And so this is why the lepers are together, why these ten lepers are together, because they have to care for one another and try to provide for one another. They'd have to ring bells so that people would get out of their way and not uh, get close to them. Uh, They'd have to sound these noises so that nobody would accidentally brush against them. And then they're not able to go to their homes. They're not able to hug their loved ones ever again. They're not able to, to kiss their children again. They're separated. And this is what sin does. This is exactly how sin works. And so leprosy here is uh, another way of talking about sin, right? It's a communicable disease, sin is. We catch it from the people around us. We hang around with somebody long enough that likes to swear and cheat and steal. It starts to sound pretty good, right? No matter how we were brought up, no matter what else we know about it, if that's who we spend our time with, it starts to have an appeal. If that's the music we listen to, if those are the books we read, if those are the movies we watch, uh, then that sin becomes a kind of a normal thing for us. And so it's a catchable disease, sin is. It's very easy to catch it. It seems to just come in the air into our ears and it starts to sound like a normal way of living. And it separates us from God and it separates us from a good relationship with those that we're supposed to be in relationship with. It keeps us from being able to be in right relationship with our husbands or wives, with our children or our parents uh, because we're not able to stand in righteousness and we're not able to to remind them of the right ways of God. Uh, We're not able to be a good example to them about uh, how the Lord calls us to act because they're going to say, well, look at you. Look at your life. How can I take any advice from you? So we lose our power uh, to be able to, to benefit them and bless them in righteousness because we lose that integrity within ourselves. And so leprosy uh, is a great example for us of sin, how easy it is to catch and how it separates us from God and from the people that we love. And so this is why perhaps they're asking for mercy, because they understand that they've had a part to play in catching this disease and in being separated, and they're asking the Lord for mercy. And mercy is to not get what we do deserve. Mercy is to not get what we do deserve. So we're saying, I deserve the the consequences of my sin. I know that I deserve them, but please separate me from that. Please don't allow me to have that consequence. Bishop John David used to tell a great story about this that I've told many times uh, before on his behalf about how uh, when he was up in Marin County as a, as a parish priest there, a mother in uh, Berkeley uh, in Oakland there at Alta Bates Hospital called him and said, come right away, my son's been in a terrible accident. And so uh, he raced from Marin over the bridge and went down to Alta Bates and went into the hospital room and the mother grabbed Bishop John David's hand and grabbed her son's hand, who was in the ICU, he had been in a motorcycle accident. He had been drinking and uh, was in this horrible accident, was on the verge of death. And she said, Lord, my son has been so stupid. Please save his life. And of course, as only Bishop John David could say, he said, well, why did she need me? I made this whole drive from Richmond. She said the prayer, right? 
And that was exactly the prayer that she needed to say. That's asking mercy. That's saying, my son deserves to die. If you drink and ride a motorcycle, that's it. Right? But she's saying, have mercy on him. Though he's stupid, spare his life. And mercy requires that we humble ourselves and we admit, this is the consequence I deserve. Please don't give it to me. Please spare me. And so this is what the Lord uh, gives to them. He gives them mercy. And it's interesting in this healing that uh, he doesn't touch them. He doesn't say, be well. He just says what? He says, go to the priests. So what he's doing is he's reconnecting them to their community because they had to go to a priest. If somebody's cured of leprosy, the priest would have to examine their skin. And there's a whole protocol for this in Scripture about what the hair is supposed to look like, what the skin is supposed to look like. And the priest examines it and examines it over a period of time. And then when they're found to be well, if there has been a healing, uh, they can return to the community, right? And so he's saying, go to the priest because they're the ones who can return you to the community. And they're healed on the way uh, when they go. It's a strange kind of a healing. The healing uh, seems to almost be a byproduct of the Lord saying, uh, yes, I will have mercy. I will uh, allow you to come back into the community, back into uh, that, that group. And this is what is at the heart of, of Ruth's gospel. It's the heart of the gospel is uh, the Lord uh, saying, though you have left the community, I'm going to let you come back. And the, the, the lengths that the Lord goes to to do that. See, the ancient Jews, when they read this story about Elimelech, Cohen to the Moabites, these are the descendants of Lot. Talk about people that went the wrong direction, right? They knew the Lord. They knew what they were supposed to do. Lot knew everything that Abraham did. And he decides to go his own way. And his family decides to go their own way. And they suffer intense consequences for that and and fall into really awful pagan worship that we don't need to go into, right? And so they've separated themselves from God. It's a choice they've made. And when Elimelech, because there's a famine, decides to go and live among the Moabites, he separated himself from God. So the ancient Jews that read that his sons then die in Moab are going to say, well, (laughs) there you go. That's the consequence. If you want to drink and ride a motorcycle, that's what's going to happen, right? You want to leave the people of God and go to Moab, what do you expect? Of course your sons are going to die. Of course you're going to be left without uh, a, a lineage in Israel. And of course, we know in the rest of the story that uh, through Ruth and Boaz, Elimelech's line is maintained, and not only maintained, but is the line of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Jesus chews out of his lineage this healing of that line. And so isn't it interesting that Naomi says, what we might expect her to say. Your agreement was with my sons. Maybe you understand that agreement only uh, when my sons are alive. Whatever you might have vowed to God in your wedding vows, whatever you might have vowed to, your, to my family, I'm not going to hold you to it. I don't have anything to offer you to hold you to it. So I consider you released. And Orpah does what she's supposed to do. No, 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 I want to stay with you. And Naomi says, no, really, you can go home. And she says, well, all right, I'll go. So it's just this, you know, social, oh, no, it's okay, I'll help you. No, no, it's okay, you can go home. Oh, okay, I'll go home, right? Ruth, however, understood that she had taken this vow, that when she was married, she, that meant something to her. When she joined that family, 
That was being joined to that family. When she took the Lord as her God, she took the Lord as her God. That, that stuck. It wasn't conditional. It wasn't, okay, Lord, you'll be my God as long as my husband's alive. You'll be my God as long as I get what I need. You'll be my God as long as you know the famine lasts. You'll be my God as long as whatever. And these are the promises that we make to the Lord, right? I'll do what you want me to do as long as you make things comfortable for me. And so this is who Orpah is. And Ruth doesn't say, because the Lord is this, or because Naomi is this. She doesn't say, because I'm expecting this when I go back to Judah. She just says, I'm going. I belong to the Lord. I belong to you. Nothing will separate me. She doesn't give any reason. She doesn't give any quality for the Lord. She simply says, this is the vow that I've made, and I'm going to do it. This is my God, and I'm standing with him. It's remarkable. Ruth, a Moabitess, shows faith in God, shows perseverance, determination, that none of this family has shown. Neither Elimelech, nor Naomi, nor their sons, but only Ruth. And she shows the qualities that St. Paul commends to Timothy that we're supposed to have. St. Paul says, you've heard me preach the gospel to all peoples. He's preaching freely to the gospel. Christianity isn't a secret religion. It isn't an insider religion. There isn't special knowledge you're supposed to have. Anybody that tells you that you've got to be able to speak a certain language or know a certain thing or have some secret inside information or secret experience is not preaching the faith of God. St. Paul is saying this is open to everybody. I've proclaimed Christ risen to everybody. This is what you need to know. And he summarizes the faith in, in a couple of lines, doesn't he? It's very straightforward. Christ died for you that you might have life in him. That's it. If you recognize that, and that changes your life and your focus, then you're with Christ. And he says that if we're going to stand by this gospel that I've preached, he says, you've got to be like three kinds of people. And so St. Paul gives these, these three little kind of mini parables, if you will, that are evidenced in the person of Ruth in a way that maybe we see it very rarely evidenced in the scriptures altogether. Uh, these three mini parables. The first one is, he says, you've got to be like a soldier. And soldiers in the ancient world would take a vow to serve a superior, right? They, they had allegiance. And once they had pledged that allegiance, there was nothing that could break it. It could be to a higher person of rank. It could have been to their city. Uh, but they take a vow of allegiance. I will stand by until death. And any soldier that then breaks that allegiance because of money or because the battle's going the wrong direction or because there's going to be a pension or any other reason has broken the fundamental, the fundamental identity of the soldier. That's the difference between a soldier and a mercenary or an outlaw. The soldier has made a vow that everybody knows about and he keeps it until death. That's what a soldier does. Other people, criminals, outlaws, mercenaries, can change with the wind. But St. Paul is saying if you're going to be a soldier of Christ, that means you make a vow and it doesn't matter how the battle seems to be going, you're going to stand by that vow, which is what Ruth does. He says you have to be a good athlete. 
What do athletes have to do? Athletes have to have discipline. They have to have self-discipline. So they not only know the rules of the game, they not only know the rules of the game, but the rules of the game come inside of them, right? So when uh, a basketball player stands onto a basketball court, he knows inbound, he knows out of bound, he knows where the clock is, he knows where he's got to stand for the three-point line, he knows how to stand back, he knows how to draw a foul from another player. He doesn't have to think about those things. They're all intuitive and within him. And he has to practice over and over again to be able to do a, a good play, right? Or a tennis player to hit it just inside of the line. Any fool can go onto a tennis court and hit a ball back and forth. I can flub it and I can make a mistake, right? That's how the world calls freedom, right? Just go out and do what you want, right? Well, that looks like somebody that's never been on a tennis court before just hitting a ball back and forth. No discipline, no practice, no knowledge of the rules or wants to argue with them. The true athlete has discipline and follows the rules because they know that those rules are going to enable them to succeed. And so we not only know the rules of God, but they come into us. And we know that those are the things that are going to bring us success in life. And then he uses the example of the farmer. Is there a better example of somebody who works hard than a farmer? I can't think of one. I can't think of any job in the world that requires more hard work and discipline. Farmers do not get days off. No such thing, right? They don't sleep. If the animals need them to be up, they're up in the middle of the night. They're caring for the animals. They're up in the middle of the night to, to, to care for them or to milk them or to whatever it is they've got to do. It doesn't matter the weather. They're in the field. Rain, sleet, snow, it doesn't matter. In other words, the external conditions don't matter. The day of the week don't, doesn't matter. They're always on the job. That's the job of a Christian. We're not Christians when the weather's good. We're not Christians when the political climate is good. We're not Christians when it's easy, when it's nice time to wake up, when there's time for us to rest. We're Christians all the time, every day. And we know that it's going to be hard work. If you get into farming thinking it's going to be an easy life, you didn't understand what it meant to be a farmer. If we get into Christianity thinking it's just going to be a cakewalk, we don't know what Christianity is. We're clearly not reading where St. Paul is when he writes this letter. He's in jail. And he's continuing to encourage Timothy into that good life, into that disciplined life. Isn't it funny when that last leper comes back and thanks the Lord? And he, he thanks God and he falls on his face before Christ and gives thanks to him. He recognizes that Jesus is God. And then Jesus says something that at, at first blush to me is really strange. He says, your faith has made you well. Well, what about the other nine? What does he mean your faith has made you well? The other nine were healed. They didn't seem to show that faith. But you know, the other nine just got clean skin. That's all they got. The tenth got salvation. He got eternal life. He got a relationship with God. He got a devotion to the Lord and an understanding of righteousness and truth and of sacrifice and of thanksgiving.
His faith made him truly well. May we be well this day and forevermore.